0: Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Kate Genovese, a wife, a mother of three. She's a grandmother, also an author. And in keeping with our thoughts on Valentine's Day, yes, there's a love story in her new book, Hat Tricks from Heaven, the story of an athlete in his own prison of addiction. Not a conventional one, but sadly, perhaps a kind of new normal. We know that there are terrible numbers of those afflicted with drug addiction, and as Kate will share with us, it's a family disease. So now let's meet Kate and hear about this love and tragedy that has recently happened in her life. Kate Genevieve, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. I really appreciate that you're taking your time and uh, making your presence here with us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Kate. Thanks for having me. And of course, we're
0: talking about a new book. You are a writer of numerous books about really tough issues. And here, uh, perhaps the toughest, hardest one of all, talking about losing a child, a young adult, but still your child. And from one of the the worst things, or one of the, yes, one of the worst things uh, that many of us face is this whole area of addiction, which feels so terrible and so senseless. That is how you lost your son, and you're here. Thank you for being here to share that story with us.
1: Yeah. Well, it is a tough uh, story to talk about, but it's important to get this message out there to to the world. I mean, we have to do something about addiction. Um, we need to pass some legislation, I think, in every state to have some of the dealers out there that are just making kids sick and, and making them die, having them die with this fentanyl that is really killing them. The heroin's bad enough but the fentanyl, and that's actually what killed my son. He um, uh, in, didn't inject it, he snorted it, and he died that way, so he had respiratory failure by accident, but my, my concern in all of this is, well, everything is my concern, to get these kids off the street and to be um, help them, help the um, boys and men and women, boys and girls, whatever, to get help, but also the ones that are dealing, most of them do not have an addiction, and they don't, they're not caring who they're selling this to. So I really think they should be um, punished for it and be incarcerated when they're caught. Just finding them, that's hard. Did the police have a tough job.
0: Definitely. They are very smart in the way they operate, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Very smart. And, you know, they uh, they have about five different telephones. They're meeting places. They'll, they'll call up and... Um, uh, say uh, to my son, Gino, we'll use Gino for an example, because he did do this anyways, but they'll say, meet me at the local grocery store, and then he'll get there, and the dealer is not there, and he'll say, meet me here there, and there's all five places to make sure the police don't know where they're going. So, final place they get to, you know, they feel safe at handing them over the drugs. So, yeah, they're, they're sneaky. They're very sneaky, these drug dealers. Yes. So, um, you know, the police will catch on, and the police are starting to catch on. That's how I feel in Massachusetts, anyways It's it's getting somewhat better. We have a very good governor, Governor Baker, who is um, right on top of things. So creating more beds, meaning um, rehab sober houses Mm -hmm. for these kids. So that's
0: a start anyway. And a big part of the story that's important is getting those uh, getting those who supply the drugs off the streets going back in time with uh the addiction i think painting this picture that we you know it's not a an addict who's you know just kind of down and out and uh had has has had a horrible life gino comes from a wonderful family he you, you read the story of Hat Tricks from heaven and realize you know this is like this quote all american family of sports and togetherness and you know really being Happy and traveling and enjoying life as a family. So there's this beautiful picture, and yet, in almost a very benign way, drugs entered the scene.
1: Yeah, that's true. What happened was, just what you said, we were having, uh, had a wonderful life, and my other son played hockey and my daughter played some sports, so... You know, we were always traveling, my husband and I with the kids, are always traveling somewhere with hockey, the sports, and having a blast. You just, you know, meet other parents, and it's just so much fun. And Gino was very good at hockey, and he got a scholarship to a local school, Governor Dummer Academy in um, Massachusetts. So he decided not to go to the local high school and have a chance and go there. So when he was playing in his first year, he got injured, like in the second or third game, to his knee. So that led to surgery, and that was his first surgery. So he got medication. And then following that, through his high school and college years, he had six surgeries. So he still played hockey, he'd get better and get back on the ice, get better and get back on the ice. But in the meantime, he was getting addicted to um, oxycodone. And um, I didn't realize, and my husband didn't realize how serious it was. And one day I took him back to school. He had a long weekend. He had just had surgery a month before. And he said, do you mind if we start, can you drive me to the doctor's office, which actually was in the hospital, I need to get another prescription. And I said, for what? This has been a month now, Gino. For what? And he said, well, I need more oxycodone. You know how much pain I'm in. And when I'm skating, it's very painful. I said, you've been on it long enough. You need to switch over to Motrin, something like that, something less potent. And, you know, he's a conniver, too, and he, he convinced me to stop at the hospital. And so we went to the doctor's office, and... um You know, I explained to him, the doctor, I I won't mention his name right now, but he said, I don't think you understand. This is just what he said to me. I don't think you understand how serious and painful a shoulder surgery is. He is in a lot of pain. He wants to get back on the ice. And I said, yes, but addiction runs in my family. My nephew, Casey, had died of an overdose um, three years before that. And we were all we're all frightened in my family. You know, we we have this 18 nieces and nephews between all of us, so we're scared. We don't want this addiction runs in the family. So he looked at me and he said, "Gina is not an addict," and handed him the prescription. So I I gave in, and um, I felt bad that I gave in. But when I got to the school, I handed the bottle. I, over the bottle of uh, medications, I brought it down to the nurse's office, and I said, "Can you administer this to him? I don't want him um taking more than he should, so that was the start that I had a feeling something was wrong with him,
0: and how that's old it,
1: he was sixteen at the time, so um he had already been having it for two years on and off with his surgeries, so that's when I kind of felt potentially he could have a problem. But I stayed in denial a lot. I After that, he had two more surgeries in college, and we wanted him to quit um, badly. I wanted him to. My husband, not so much. He just said, well, let him finish playing the college years, and then it'll be over with. He's not going to play anymore. But I I had a feeling that something else was the matter with him because he had this underlying anger that... Um, I picked up on and one of his teachers called me when he went back to school after a summer break. Uh, He had them write a story of anything they wanted to write about the summer or anything at all that they wanted to write about. So Gino wrote about this family that there was three children and uh, both parents were alive and um, one of the children got sexually abused and then they found out in a tooth, all the kids are sexually abused. And um, the younger of the three went to where this perpetrator was and shot him three times, once in the stomach for Jesse, once in the arm um, for Danny, and one, once in, right in the heart for me. And so this was very concerning to the teacher as it was me. He said, you know, maybe this is just a made-up fictional story, but I think there's something going on here. So I confronted Gino and went up there a couple of days later, and, and I said, well, what's this all about? I, You know, what's going on? And um, we had already known that my two older kids were sexually abused by my brother. So I just thought Gino got away with it, that he, he wasn't abused, but in fact he was. So he made the story up. It was supposed to be fictional, but it was real. It was about our family, but he flowered it a bit. Anyways, we got him some help. We got him into counseling. Very few people knew on the campus. He didn't tell too many people. I think he he told a couple of friends, and that was it. He went to counseling, and then he didn't want to talk about it anymore. That was it. I'm done with it. But he really didn't talk about it. He didn't. It was ruminating in its soul. That's how I put it. It was just ruminating. And he acted normal in so many ways. He had tons of friends. He had a great sense of humor. Um, he loved us dearly. He loved his brother and sister. He was a very close bond with his dad. And in college, he finished. He had injuries. He didn't want to stop. And he, he said, "Let just let him finish. It's going to be done with. So he had us out of school, he still needed another surgery, if you can believe it, but he said, I have the opportunity for a really good job, I'm taking it, I'll have the surgery another time. But what was going on is he realized he still had the addiction, and so any money he made, he was living with another person, uh, a guy he went to school with, and he had a girlfriend, Heather, and Heather didn't know too much about it either. And he was getting drugs off the street now. He's getting oxycodone off the street. And finally, I think a year later, he was still working and still had his company car. But a year later, his roommate called us up and said, I hate to be a rat. That's how he put it. But Gino has a problem. He has a problem with oxycodone. And he said, I do as well. And I'm taking myself to California and getting help out there. But I need the money Gino owes me, $2,000. So we didn't know if this kid was telling the truth. So um, my husband got on the phone and talked to him for quite a while, and he said, I believe him, but we have to go confront Gino. So he went up to his apartment, and he lived above a bar, which we weren't happy about, but he chose it. And we found out later that that's where he's getting his drugs, a lot of it, because that's where people just went to buy drugs. So we told him he had to come home and live with us. You know, you, you got to get better, you got to come home. So he did. We packed his things up and came home. And it was just torture. I never realized what it was like living with somebody with a disease of addiction. It was terrible. We had stay straight for a while and do wonderful, and then he would get high. He could not stay straight. We said, Gino, you need a rehab. We've got to get you into a detox. And every time we said that, he would leave. He would go to a friend's house or anywhere. He would just leave, go to his girlfriend's, behave for a while, come back and say, I'm okay now. And, and it was a rat race like that. He was up and down. And then this is the course of the three years. He got in trouble with the law. He got in an accident, and they found some drugs on him. And, of course, it was a Percocet. So he was put on probation because he hadn't been in trouble before. And then he got caught again, and this time it was heroin. So he had to get a lawyer himself, and he was more on probation. But now they wanted him to um, go to classes. We wanted him to go into a facility. And it was, he was 27, and it was his choice. So he said, no, I'll do it, I'll go to AA meetings, alcoholic anonymous meetings and narcotic anonymous meetings. And he was forced to, he had to, he had to have somebody sign a form when he went to bring to the probation officer. But you know, he didn't care, he just kept getting high. And finally, I was away, I was visiting my sister, helping her out because she was sick in Oregon and she had cancer and I was there for six weeks. I was going to stay and help her out, but the two weeks that I was there, he got in trouble and he got arrested and this time they put him in jail. So I went home the following two weeks and I came home and he got a lawyer himself and, you know, I said, this is serious. You're going to have to go to rehab. And he said, I know that now, mom. Can you help me find one? I can't do it from here. So my sister and I called every bed there is. And when I say bed, I mean a facility like a sober home or a detox. There were no beds available. He had mass health, so it was free health. If we had money, like if we had $10,000 or $20,000 or something, he could have gone to a private place, but we didn't have that. He had already stolen enough money from us. We were afraid to put in any money towards it. So he got out of jail, and they let him go on home arrest. But let me back up a little. We had found a place in Florida, a really good place. It was a working rehab, meaning it was very strict. You'd have to take classes on addiction and what addiction does to your brain and what can happen to you, like, Then when they think you're ready, you go find a job, and you live there for a year, and you pay your own way. So it was very reputable. We had a bed all ready for him, and the judge and the probation officer were totally against it. The judge actually took the papers that we handed him for him to go into um, the facility and threw them at the lawyer. He crinkled it up and threw it at him. And he said, This kid's not leaving Massachusetts. You find something else that he can do because he's not going out of the state. So, um, doesn't, I need to interrupt
0: that part of it, Kate. Doesn't that seem really preposterous to just blankly say he can't go out of state? It's not as though he was going to live with a relative, you had a reputable facility that would help him. And this was just several years before actually Gino overdosed and and that ended his life.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. We were so upset. So um, he came home on house arrest. He had to wear a GPS on his leg. So they knew where he was going at all times. And he had to go to um, the sheriff's every day and go to a class. So I drove him to roll. You know, it's not a very nice town, and I don't mean to say that badly because there's some nice parts of it, this part wasn't. And he met other kids, and then he knew how to, you know, move the system. He knew how to make the urine test he had to take be clean. you know, of different medications he could put in the urine. It was amazing what these kids think of, these addicts with this disease. And finally, he had to be on that for three months on the GPS in home arrest. And we didn't get along. You know, we were fighting because I could tell sometimes he was high. And um, if I had called and told the probation office, he'd go back to jail. And I didn't want that either because he had some incidences when he was in there a month. So we just kind of wrote out a contract saying if if he's going to stay here, he had to follow some rules. So he did, and he was doing well, and he was doing well for for the last month. And he found a job. He went back to his old boss or somebody he knew within the lumber world. That's what he worked with, lumber companies, and they gave him a job. He told them the truth, and he he said, you have to get off by your probation. You can't walk around with a GPS machine and mark here. So he was due to get off it in, like, that week. Suddenly, the probation officer calls up and says, we want you to stay on us for another three months. So that just killed him. That killed his spirit. He just couldn't believe it. And we said, all right. You know, I truly felt felt so sorry for him. He suddenly thought he'd do a good job. So he went out and he said, all right, I'll find a job working evenings because I have to go to Lowell every day in the morning. He found a job. And it was, you know, a minimum wage job, but so what? He had a job to keep him busy. He could stay out till 10 at night. But what happened was, though, I was on Memorial Weekend, and uh, my husband stayed home. I went to my brother's in New Hampshire for the weekend, and he went out. He had to be home at 10. My husband saw him walking up the street that Friday night. He said he looked sober. He looked fine. He stayed awake with him, and they watched some kind of game on television. And then my husband said, I'm going to bed and Gino said, Me too and my husband woke up two hours later and saw the light on downstairs, so he went to put it off and there he found him on the floor and it was too late. Called the police and he had already been dead two hours. He had the drugs on him.
0: And that final use was actually the fentanyl, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. Well it was mixed with we had an autopsy done because he also had asthma, and so we wanted to make sure there was nothing wrong, too, just for other other kids. But we knew it was drugs, so it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. So I had been so close to him, so close to him, growing up. And
0: there were a number of trigger points, certainly. The injuries that with playing sports, which, you know, we want our kids involved in sports, but those injuries bring in the drugs and someone who perhaps has a susceptibility might be more prone to following that path. But also, do you feel, Kate? That secret, having that emotional abuse, he said, "No, I'm done with looking at the sexual abuse that went on." Do you think that still was something that he was needing to uh, medicate with the drugs?
1: Yes, yes. He told me that later on. He said he he would have flashbacks, and the drug helped him. And he just had this anger inside of him for my brother, and. Things weren't going his way, you know. He had lost everything. He had lost his job. He lost his girlfriend. He lost friends. He was a handsome kid, and he was starting to lose his happiness, his smile, everything. He was becoming really sad. So when that happened, we were all just in a fog. But a few months later, I said, "You know, I'm not sitting around and just doing nothing. I'm a nurse," and I went back to work. But I said, you know, most people acknowledge that there's this epidemic going on in the United States. I just didn't imagine it would affect our lives, but yet it did. So I decided I'm not going to wallow in my sadness. I'm going to write a book because I had written three others. And um, maybe it can help others dealing with the drug problem. So that's what I did. So it took me about a year and a half to write the book. I started it on September 1st. And it came out on um, October 25th of last year. So every night when I came home from work, I uh, worked on the book from 5 to 8. I was very disciplined. And, you know, it just fell into place. And then I decided to put pictures in it. That was the part that was so hard with so many memories.
0: And that would no doubt stall you for a while because of all of that emotion that would come up in you.
1: Exactly. In the beginning, I had to take a couple of weeks off here and there because it was just too emotional. You know, I just was sad, you know, with the memories. And, you know, people were always over here, which is good. I actually needed people. My family came over almost every day, but definitely the weekends. I had friends, many girlfriends, and they'd come over and support me. And I started going to a grief support group. That is what really helped me. That was at my church. They have a Christian grief support group, and that really helped me amazingly. And I'm spiritual as well, and I believe in God, so I believe that He's in Heaven. So...
0: And so I told you before we actually started this conversation that I feel that you are such a courageous woman, Kate, to tell this story. As you told us how it was just so tough emotionally to write it, and yet you persisted in going through that because what you've produced is really a gift for us. You're helping all of us, whether we're directly affected or indirectly affected, we all need to know how this epidemic is affecting each individual and how we can see it more clearly and jump in there to do something proactive.
1: Exactly. For instance, if you had a person with this disease, and it is a disease, living next to you, you would know, if you read my book, you'd know what to do. You know, there's so many things you can do to do to help them. And one of them is to love them, but another is to tough love them, too. You know, don't fall for things. You know, in our instance with Gino, I could tell when he was high because his pupils would get very constricted, and he'd be scratching. You know, that's one of the physical symptoms. They scratch all the time, and, you know, his whole personality would just totally change. And they would be on the phone all the time he had a couple of different phones himself because he kept losing his phones, And, you know, he just wasn't himself. But also things that I think parents don't realize, some don't, some probably are on top of it, but they hide your credit cards, hide your money, hide every belonging you have, or get a safe and put it away. Because they're very, very conniving, you know, and they're loving, but they're conniving. <laughs> So I just always never lost hope that he was going to get better. I really believed he would. And so I was very surprised when I got the phone call, very surprised. You know, I knew how much he was loved because there were 400 people at his wake. And the first person that came in was a lady from the sub shop. When he went to college, he would stop in the sub shop every day to say hi to her. He didn't necessarily always buy a sub. He just liked talking to her. And it was just funny. You know, he just would go in and he said, You remind me of my mother. I need to talk to somebody.
0: So, you do in this wonderful book, heart wrenching, but really wonderful Hat Tricks from Heaven. You give us this really great picture of your family, of Gino, so that we can appreciate how, again, it's so insidious, this drug epidemic that we have in this country. And as you say, Kate, sharing these details is definitely a gift that people can pick up on and look for that in their own lives, because here we have this great, quote, all-American family. It happens across the board, regardless of economics, regardless of anything on the spectrum. It's happening right. everywhere, right?
1: Absolutely. There's no, as we say in Al-Anon, there's no certain zip code that affects the wealthy and the poor and, the educated, the uneducated, and, you know, you just don't want to hide and be in denial about it, that's for sure. Yes.
0: So the book, very important. It's available now, and I think we can definitely look for it at all of our favorite book sources. And, Kate, let's mention your website, because this, too, is a great source of information, and you like to connect with people. You're finding that people are connecting with you, right? Right.
1: Yeah, through the through the website there's an email they can use. So the books have tricks from heaven and my website's my name Kate Books dot com.
0: And Genevieve is spelled
1: G E N O V E S E.
0: So Kate Books dot com And Kate Genevieve, I am just so grateful to you for spending this time. I'm very saddened that this has been your experience, and I'm grateful that you want to share it, though, so that others can benefit and that it somehow appeases the loss at least a little. It never will make it go away, but I am so grateful to you.
1: Well, thank you, Kate. It was a pleasure to be on and and share my story.
0: And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Kate Genovese and Sunday Morning Magazine with Dr. Jay Cohn. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I'll get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 106.9 webpage. Click on the On Air tab, then Sunday mornings, and look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of heart-centered activity of the physical and the emotional kind. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women ON WARM 106.9, THE STATION TO PICK YOU UP AND MAKE YOU FEEL GOOD. GOOD MORNING.